Hey there, friends. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to invite you to our next Collaboration Zone Zoom party. This is a free Zoom chat get together with all of my entrepreneur friends in the Rise and Recovery Network, where we can share mind and business growth tips, strategies, and you get to network with other entrepreneurs of all experience levels. So if you want to level up your business and get connected, book your spot today. Head on over to www. The road forward slash collaboration zone. When we recover, we are returning to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. We begin the process of regaining control over something that was lost. Welcome to the Road Beyond Recovery podcast, and my name is Tamar, your host. Have you ever felt like you were meant for more? Well, I help people discover their purpose so they can follow their passion and realize what they are truly capable of. My mission is to empower people in recovery to embrace their authentic selves, live up to their true potential, and answer the question, what lies beyond recovery for you? Hey everyone, Tamar here from the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. Thanks a bunch for joining me today. So let's start off with a little gratitude. So today I am grateful for the power of choice, right? The gift of choice. I remember when I was in my addiction, I always felt like things happened to me, like I was unlucky you know, I felt like I didn't have a choice, right? I, I couldn't save money. I just didn't have a choice because all this stuff happened. But the the reality was, is that everything that I ex- had experienced that was negative was a consequence of the choices that I was making. So the choice to become sober, right? When I had finally stopped digging, I didn't want to dig any further. I, it was time for me to get out of my pity pot and stop feeling sorry for myself because in my experience and what I went through, I did. I was incredibly selfish. I had finally hit a point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so I made that choice to change. I started to do the work, right? I made a choice to discover a higher power. I made a choice to clean up my side of the street. I made a choice to start helping other people. And every day I get to make a choice to do things that align with the life that I want to live or to make choices that will basically throw me in the other direction. Because trust me, there are still times where I make the wrong choice and I suffer the consequence for it. But I think we have that gift and knowing, you know, we have the power to think what we want and choose what we want, you know, or at least we can't always choose what happens to us, but we can choose how we respond to a situation. So there you go. That's what I'm grateful for today. And I would love to hear what you're grateful for. You can send me a little audio clip and it'll be on one of my future shows. You can send that clip to Tamar at theroadforward.ca. So just who you are. You don't have to give your full name. If you want to stay anonymous, that is totally cool. But share something that you are grateful for and why you're grateful for it. And you could be on one of the upcoming shows. So on today's episode, I chat with my good friend, Bill Ward. 
He shares his story of overcoming addiction. He has an absolute amazing story, which just gives him so much experience. Um, and he talks about how that experience has gotten him into coaching. He really talks about taking people out of the dark and into the light and watching the lights go on in people's eyes and hearts. He is incredibly passionate about helping his First Nations brothers and sisters get out of that darkness, right? He wants to bring more awareness to what's going on. And so we talk about his passion for coaching. And we also talk about his passion about recovering from that spiritual malady, which is something that is very near and dear to my heart, because that is something that affected me tremendously in my early recovery. So let's dig in. Welcome back. We are hanging out with Bill Ward today. How are you, Bill? I am great, Tamara. Thank you for having me on today. I am so grateful you're here. So why don't we start off for those that don't know you, introduce yourself, kind of tell us what you do today and what you're passionate about. Okay, awesome. Uh, Well, my name's Bill Ward. I've started a company called uh, Bill Ward Life. Um, I was once in the construction business and uh, because recovery and helping people changed me so much on the inside, I wanted to take that into my life and I didn't have a choice. Creator told me this is what you're doing. Um, So, you know, I do recovery podcasts now. I also do one-on-one recovery coaching. I do group sessions uh, with organizations, businesses, and uh, people that want to bring me on and hire me on or, or a lot of it I do for free. Um, what else do I do? I am uh, targeting some First Nations to get them to bring me on, do ceremony, um, try to carry their message of their issues in their community out to some bigger platforms and, and, and a number of other little things going on. But that's the basis of it. I love it. And, you know, I think that there's so many of us that just have everything we've been through, we have this gift that we've gone through so much and why not use that gift to help other people? So I love what you're doing. Um, Now, I usually like to kind of start off, you know, what was life like growing up for you? Because I know everybody has a different story and how they ended up into addiction. So what was life like growing up for you and what led to your addiction? Um, Good question. I often share my my story and as I'm in recovery longer and longer, more is being revealed. Um, But from a young age, you know, my mom wasn't around. I am half Cree, I'm half native and half white. My mom is white, my dad is full blood Cree. Um, I don't remember my mom being around when I was young. I think she had some of her own mental health issues and maybe some alcohol issues at that time, and she couldn't take care of us. Um, My father was the one taking care of us, but eventually his alcoholism got too much, and he gave me and my younger brother, who's 11 and a half months younger, to my grandmother on my mom's side. So then my grandmother raised us for a few years. My mom started, you know, showing, showing up and I think she was working on trying to get her shit together and uh, eventually she did. But during the period where she would come back and forth and visit us at my grandmother's, I remember as a little kid, I was very angry. I'm pretty sure I was angry at the abandonment, um, not having my mom around. My dad was no longer around. 
but at least by the grace of creator, I had my grandmother there and she was just an angel in my life for those early young years. Um, but anger was starting to build in me as a young kid. Um, so I kind of walked through a number of years. Uh, eventually my mom gets us back. Uh, we bounce around living with her boyfriends a little bit. And then one of her boyfriends, she finally got her own place. And then one of her boyfriends actually was an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic. He used to abuse my mom and I would see the remnants of the abuse in the mornings and I could hear it sometimes. And, you know, watching your mom with black eyes and bruises and being just totally defeated daily and loving this guy anyway, you know, brought up more anger. And I hated this guy. And I remember he wanted to try to kind of be a father figure. And I remember him like brushing his whiskers up against my face I could smell his sweat and the whiskey on his breath and I just despised this guy and then one day I come home from school me and my brother and our whole extended family was there and my mom's laying on the floor in the middle of the living room and uh this gentleman had actually hung himself I know I'm I practiced the 12 steps and in the 12 steps in the big book, it talks about we get to the jumping off point. We can't imagine life with alcohol or drugs. We can't imagine it without it. And we don't know what to do. And that is the spiritual malady, essentially. And the drugs and the alcohol quit working for this man. And he ended up hanging himself. And it destroyed my mother. But she got through that. Took took about a year. And, uh, you know, we just kind of kept on going on. I get into uh, high school. I'm, I'm using quite regularly, um, started with weed, got into booze, got into other drugs. And all through my teenage years, all I did was drink and do drugs. And I fought, I fist fought being, uh, I, I look very native, even though I'm half growing up in a society with a lot of prejudice and judgment, you got to be pretty thick skinned and pretty tough and being a native kid in this world wasn't easy so I had to learn how to fight and I fought a lot of my life through through every circumstance but then I started using it as a tool also because it gained me respect and it gained me some notoriety and these kind of things so it became a tool but one thing that I'd like to highlight is right around before I got into the drugs and the alcohol when I was a teenager I remember looking at the world going what's the point anyway like why why am I even here? They say this is a free world. They say that life is great and all of these things, but I didn't feel that vibrancy of life at all. And I didn't really know what the purpose was. And I really contemplated why. But I did find drugs and alcohol and that gave me the sense of ease and comfort that I needed to get on with a number of years. And then I took it right until my, you know, I went through my teenage years also in and out of jail many times I wanted to I was in treatment by the time I was 17 my dad paid me to go to his treatment center unbeknownst to me my father had gotten clean and sober and built a career in addiction counseling and became a director of a rehabilitation center my mom had called him and said Emil I need you to come and help your son he's destroying his life and so my dad came down from up north and asked me to go to his center and and I said I wouldn't go and uh, he ended up bribing me to go and I ended up going. I came out of that center one month clean off of weed and two months clean off of booze. 
and some other drugs. And I figured that was a success because I didn't plan on quitting when I went there in the first place. I was going there for the money. But then the next number of years were pretty bad. I, I almost uh, killed a guy in a fist fight, just took it way too far in a alcohol-induced rage. Um, I actually did get out of that because the guy didn't show up in court, but it was pretty scary. And, uh, you know, by the time I was 22 years old, I had tried to quit so many times already at 22. I remember the same town that I went to treatment in, Bonneville, Alberta. I had worked, I was working in that town at 22 and I had a really bad night out and I jumped in the work truck in the morning and I was just defeated and I just wanted everything to stop. And I prayed so hard and I didn't, I grew up in Catholic school, so I didn't really have a choice on what I had to believe in. But I, so I really pushed away any idea of God, but that day I prayed to something and I asked it to help me. And from that day on, I never had another drop of booze in my life, even till today. But my disease, the spiritual malady, it took off in some other ways. So basically that's, that's kind of how I got started. And when I was 22, again, I, because I didn't have a solution to drugs and alcohol anymore, in 22 and a half, I feel that those ugly feelings again, deep down inside. And I'm again, looking there at the turning point going, what's the point? But by now I'm a little older and I can see that, you know, people that have money, people that are doing all these things, people that are rich, they can do whatever they want. And that seems like that's the way to happiness. So I made a decision right there. I'm going to build a company and I'm going to get rich and I'm going to make my own happiness. And I did that. I ended up building a company at 20, 24 years old. By the time it was, I was 30, I was making over $2 million a year. I had my kids through that period of time with my wife at the time, common-law wife, Shannon. We had three daughters. And thank God, by the grace of God, he gave me daughters because I was a very hard, rigid man. And uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't undo this anger thing. But they softened it a little bit. They softened it a little bit. But, you know, over those years, I made my wife cry many buckets of tears. Never physically abused her, but I would say I must have. I must have harmed her by my words and by my indignation and, and by all of these symptoms of my own spiritual malady. But I just thought it was life, right? I didn't really understand anything. I was just trying to live. But my disease was just manifesting in status. It was manifesting in the things that I bought. It was manifesting in the money that I made and who you thought I was. And Tamara, a big part of this is all through my my youth and my early 20s, whenever First Nations person would come up and try to talk to me, I would avoid them like the plague. I had built such a judgment and fierce resentment and hatred for my own race. And I look back and it only came to light this year that I spent my whole life trying to run away from my own identity as a First Nations man. And I've done enough work one-on-one -on -one with other alcoholics and addicts to know that if you're not authentically in the truth of who you are, you're blotting it out. And I blotted that out for many, many years. And I was indoctrinated with a lot of Western society beliefs, which is why I thought that my, my peace and my happiness would come through material blessings. 
but it didn't didn't work. It worked until it didn't work, just like alcohol worked until it didn't work. And then, uh, you know, I, I built up this big, beautiful company, million dollar house, beautiful family, all the things that you would ever want. And, uh, you know, I, I could keep going. You want me to keep going on this little story or do you want to interject? Yeah. Well, I just, I loved so much of what you said and it really resonated with me, especially the part about being authentic. You know, um, when I was in probably about, you know, a few years into recovery, I wanted to hide that person I was, you know, who I was, how I felt. And I realized that I actually could reach more people and make a bigger impact if I was just honest and open about who I was, because there was nothing to be ashamed of. So I love that you you mentioned that. And, you know, you talk about the spiritual malady. When I first came into recovery, I was like, "Mm -mm, nope, I'm not doing the spiritual part of the program. Like there's, there's no higher power. There's no God, you know, whatever you call it, I am not doing that because you know, where has that higher power been my whole entire life because of everything I've gone through? And then I actually had somebody stop me and say, Tamar, you're still alive. Like you are still on this planet for a reason. And getting over that spiritual malady was really difficult and it took a lot of time. And like you mentioned, you know, it's it's not the money. It's not all that kind of stuff. You have to start working on yourself. You have to get rid of that spiritual malady. And I live a very spiritual life today as a result of that. And never in a million years would I have thought that. But, you know, what would you say kind of the keys in your early recovery were to building that foundation to get you to where you are today? Well, that's a great question, too. So I'll just finish the last little part. Yeah, because it's very important. So my brother, as you know, I'm building this company, everything's good. I'm about 36 years old. I'm making $3 million a year. Um, my grandma had passed away in 2009 and she was like, she was everything to me. Um, go to her funeral. I'm picked to speak at the eulogy and I can't even talk. I'm, I'm destroyed with tears and I'm the kind of guy that doesn't cry. Anyway. That year, my brother was a missing person and he had moved out to Winnipeg in his own addiction so he could drink and use with impunity and not have his family bother him. But he was a missing person. So my dad said, son, let's go find your brother because I'm really worried about him. And I said, okay. So uh, I flew out to Winnipeg. My dad doesn't fly, so he drove. I got there a day early and I had his photo and I would drive around the seedy ends of Winnipeg and downtown showing all these people, street people, bar people, normal people, whatever, his picture. And I said, have you seen this guy? It's my brother. He's missing. No, I haven't seen him. No, I haven't seen him. No, I haven't seen him. A couple people said that. Yeah, I think I recognize him. But this one guy, he was a street guy. He said, yeah, I think I know your brother and I think I know where he is. And I'm like, no way. Can you take me to them? So he jumps in my rental car and we go to the north end of Winnipeg, it was. And uh, we go to this crack house and I'm sober-ish. I smoke weed. I do a little bit of mushrooms here and there, maybe a little bit of acid over these years. But mostly I just smoke weed at this point in my life. And we go into this crack house. And I don't know if you know anything about like that, wor that world. But a lot of times you got to prove to these people you're not a cop or a narc. So, yeah, I go into this crack house and, you know, in order for me to prove that I'm not a cop or a narc, 
these guys say, well, you know, if you're going to come in here and look for your brother, then you need to have a hoot of this crack. And I didn't care. I didn't really think I was, anything was going to happen. So I put this pipe in my mouth and I loaded it with a piece of crack and I smoked it and I smoked another piece and that was that. Then I looked around this house for my brother and he wasn't there actually. Um, we did end up finding him the next day and got him to safety and, uh, and everything was fine. He's still in active addiction today, but that at that moment we did find him and got him to safety. And then I came back to Calgary and I got my business and my family and all these things. And in our literature, it talks about the, it talks about the phenomenon of craving and the obsession of the mind. And that is kind of the basic premise of kind of what makes an alcoholic an addict an alcoholic or an addict it sets off an allergy in the body and then it sparks the obsession of the mind and then the cycle continues again so i get back to calgary and i'm not a crackhead but i can't stop thinking about crack and i don't drink i smoke a little weed so this this obsession of my mind and me not being able to stop thinking about this drug that i actually hate and the guys that would work for me, if I knew they were smoking this or doing cocaine or any other drug, I would usually fire them because I don't tolerate that. But now I have this obsession rolling around my mind and I'm driving around doing my business for like a week or two. And then I make a call to try to find some. So I find some crack. I secretly go and smoke this stuff. And it launched me into the fourth dimension. It was like, this is what I always wanted. I was in a fantasy land and it was like the best thing I ever had. But the guilt and shame deep down in me, knowing I shouldn't do this and, no, and knowing that it's terrible and it destroys lives. But at that moment, it felt like it was the best thing ever in my life. So I did it that one time and then it came back. So I didn't know when I was in Winnipeg, I had set off the phenomenon of craving, which kicked off the obsession. And I hadn't had alcohol or any hard drugs in, in years. But now here I am on this, unbeknownst to me, on a cycle now. So every two weeks or every month, I would go find some, I would smoke it secretly, guilt and shame, guilt and shame. And this whole first year, it was pretty manageable. And then the second year became a little less manageable. But by the third year, I was getting really hooked on this stuff. It was happening more than once a week. I started doing it, sleeping in bed beside my wife, and I would sprinkle weed on top of it to hide the smell. I'm now doing it in the garage. I'm now doing it all the time. For the next three years, it became such a terrible habit that I had actually burnt my life down to nothing. I lost my family. I lost my house. I lost my business. I lost my self-respect. I lost everything. The only thing that I didn't put in the end of a crack pipe, I put about $500,000 cash in the end of a crack pipe in those five years. The only thing that didn't, I didn't lose was the boat that we had and a trailer. Why? Because they were not in my name. They were in Shannon's name. Shannon and my daughters were homeless, living with my old nanny in a one, two bedroom house with her husband. And I'm just, I'm just messed up. 
And I asked Shannon, can I borrow the trailer so I can live in it on our foreclosed property? And she's so mad at me for destroying our lives. And she doesn't even know the truth yet. I haven't told her. She doesn't know I'm a crackhead. She just thinks all my bad business dealings made this happen. I was such a manipulator and I was such a good liar. And I made this all seem like something else, but really it was a crack addiction. And uh, people will say, well, how could she not notice? Well, she didn't notice. That's how good sometimes we are at hiding shit. And sometimes people don't want to know the truth anyway, as I'm burning down our lives. So she lends me this trailer. I put it on the foreclosed property. There was rental work getting done by the bank. So there was a porta potty there so I could use the porta potty. I now have no vehicle. I own a $500 beater. I'm putting like 80 cents of gas into my car to get around. And I eventually say to my dad, my dad's been in a program, 12-step fellowship for most of his life. And I, I'm just desperate now. And I ask my dad, I'm just like so humiliated. And I said, dad, can you take me to a meeting? And he said, son, I've been waiting 30 years for you to ask me that. He says, of course, I'll take you to a meeting. So then the next month, I went to meetings like five times a day because I was safe for those 10 hours. And I had to do that over and over and over. And I was so angry in these meetings. I spewed rage and anger. And, and then eventually I got a sponsor. But I was desperate, man. I was desperate because I had nothing left, Tamara. If I had an ounce of spirit left or an ounce of ego, if I had another $100 in my pocket, like I was absolutely broken person. And in our big book, it says, in the face of collapse and despair and total failure of the human resources, this is where they found the new power, peace, sense, happiness, and direction flow into them. That's where I found it. And from there, I started my recovery journey. And, and that's a journey in its own right. But that's how I got started. It's crazy. Wow. And, you know, it just goes to show you with cross addictions, right? Just because we've spent a lot of our life addicted to one substance. I, I was reading actually about the science of addiction re, uh, recently, and it's the humans can become addicted to anything that gives them pleasures. And especially when we trigger, you know, you talk about the phenomena of craving, it's after we have that first drink or we have that first drug, and it doesn't really matter what it is, if it gives us that sense, same sense of ease and comfort. It, we can go off. And that's why in my recovery right now, I can't touch anything. Like I can't even take back painkillers because I know that, well, my back's never going to get better, right? I'm always going to find an excuse to take that stuff. And so I think that it just goes to show you someone like yourself that, you know, you get rid of one thing, something else is introduced, and it's easy to head right back in the wrong direction. So, you know, what did that early recovery look like for you? Early recovery, that first year, I just dug in and I did what I told. And I remember going through that book with my sponsor and I it talked a lot about God. And like I said earlier, I really did not like that word. I did. I was self-reliant. One of my models growing up was the more you're the more, you know, the more you're worth. And so it was all about self-knowledge and experience to me. And then to, for me to turn over my life and my will to this thing that I don't even want any part of that. It's also humiliating. And to, and to say, I can't do this is humiliating. This, it was very humiliating. But when I 
look at it truthfully, I'm like, I had nowhere else to go. You know, as I became alcoholic, crushed by the self-imposed crisis, I could no longer postpone or evade. I couldn't postpone and evade this anymore. I tried and I didn't know I was trying. I had to fearlessly face this proposition that this program was going to help me or it wasn't. And my sponsor, I believed in my sponsor more than I believed in anything. And he showed up every Wednesday at 5.30 and he was doing it out of the kindness of his heart. And I just didn't understand. But I had nowhere to go. So I just, I just kept doing this. And I did my inventory work in the steps, my step four and five. In that step four, it gave me so much life because I could see I'm not a fucked up human being just because that's what I am. I have an illness. I have a disease and all of my behaviors are driven from somewhere. And it, it was a relief to me because I had had so much guilt and shame over what I'd done. It was uh, it was a relief to see that I could get better. So I I did my fifth step and and I felt some relief. And then I worked that whole first year. I started sponsoring and helping other alcoholics and people, and I did a lot of service. And but I didn't understand the illness quite yet. I still didn't understand it. And then I went through a whole bunch of pain at about fifteen months acting out in my behaviors that I hadn't corrected yet. And then I suffered major pain and the kind of pain where most people go back out because that's why we drink and use. I have these ideas, emotions, and these attitudes that have been the driving force of my whole life. And if unless I change these ideas, emotions, and attitudes, I'm going to need the relief always because I'm running my life the same way. Old Bill will always drink, and if I don't change a lot of these behaviors, I'll need the relief that I used to get out of drugs and alcohol. And the thing about this is, is I don't have choice. I have lost the power of choice in drink or drug. The book says I succumb to the desire means fail to resist. I don't have a choice if I live in those defects in spiritual malady. <coughs> so I knew the solution was in that, those pages. Me and my buddy started dissecting. Step six in that, in that literature, in the 12 and 12. And I started seeing myself riddled through that literature in a way that I had never seen it before. And then as I continually worked with one alcoholic after another, after another, that literature gained new life. And it spoke to me in ways that I can't even explain. It's changed me from the inside. Like the literature brings tears to my eyes. And to me, it's the, it's the most profound way to start changing your life. I know Native culture has a lot of great things. I know Buddhism has a lot of great things. I know there's a lot of great things and a lot of ways to get recovery. But in my opinion, that step four and five process and the six too, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And now when I work with other people, I understand this program, I understand the literature, I understand recovery, I understand the spiritual malady. And to me, it's all about the spiritual malady. So I always focus on the spiritual malady. And, and that's what I want to tell businesses, organizations, um, individuals. I want to help these people understand this illness because it's a very misunderstood illness. 
It's not a matter of my self-will. It's a deep-rooted illness based in spiritual sickness. So anyway, that launched my recovery to a new level. And then it just hasn't stopped. What I like to call it is I, I get the God dope now. There's a dope out there. It's called the God dope, and that's the dope that I want. There is not a high better than God, creator, universe, whatever you want to call it. doesn't matter to me. God is my passed away grandmother, mixed with my culture, mixed with my dead friend who died a few years ago. I don't even know what God or creator is to me, really. It's something that's so powerful. But, um, and because I'm so passionate, because this program's changed me, my anger problem, God, please hear me, my anger problem is relatively gone away. And why I say that to creators, because he'll show me if I tell him that I'm running the show, my anger's gone. I'll leave this house today and I'll be angrier than I've ever been. If I say I'm not lustful anymore, he'll place me in a position where let's see. So I got to be real careful with the words I use. So that's why I just asked for his grace. But my anger and my lust and all of these really self-destructive behaviors are relatively non-issues in my life today. And, uh, I can't even tell you how things are. And I'm not saying it's it's bowl of cherries every day, but my life is pretty damn good and people are following me. They're following my lead. I, I go and do a, a workshop, 100 people show up. On a typical workshop, 10 people show up for most people. But my voice and my passion and I have an ability, you talked about gifts at the beginning of this podcast, People want to hear what I got to say, and I don't lie. I tell the truth. I share my experience. I share the experience out of the book, and I'm, I'm all about people are dying. So I don't want people to die, and I want them to understand there is another way of life. But it's not just happening because you want it to happen. It happens because you really want it, and you got to do what it takes. And that's what I'm good at, inspiring people to do what it takes, getting them to shift their thinking in the hour I speak or the half hour or the five minutes that I speak, I, I get their mind to shift. And part of the reason I went down this path of helping others, because I didn't have a choice. Creator said, this is what you do. I remember the day, all I wanted was my career back. And I got my career back. I was making six figures, director of operations for a corporation in Calgary. And one day at my desk, I'm like, this is eating your soul. You don't, you don't want to do this anymore. But I knew there was no money in, in that counseling stuff with alcoholics and addicts. And I had $5,000 a month of child support and bills to pay. So I prayed and meditated for a month. And then I pulled my car over one day and I stopped and I prayed and I asked creator, asked my grandmother. I said, grandma, I know you want me to go help other people addicts and alcoholics, but there's no money in that. If I go do that, is there going to be money in it? And the only time I ever heard God speak back to me was that day, like in words, like we're talking. And my grandmother said, Billy, it doesn't matter if there's money involved. That's what you go do. So then ever since that day, I gave notice and the creators put everything in my path to get me to this place where I am with you today on this podcast. And I'm taking my steps daily to try to become an influencer in recovery 
somebody who carries the message to First Nations organizations and really expose the truth about the issues. And I don't think most of our world is suffering mental health issues, although that is very important. It's a spiritual health problem. And if we can get the governments of our nation and our nations to focus and redirect what they're doing for help for us in a way more spiritual and ceremonial way, and really try, like you said, go inside of ourselves, because this is where it needs to be fixed, not the symptom of my mental health, whatever it is, and more drugs, more drugs, more therapy, more this. The therapy needs to come from my creator, from living from a place of love, from within myself, loving me, and then I can love you, right? But it's very difficult for people to understand what we're talking about and, and see that, right? So yeah. in a nutshell. And, you know, bringing more awareness, like you said to it, is so important because it doesn't get talked about enough, right? It's always looked at something you should be ashamed of, and it's not. And, you know, there's a couple things that you said, the helping others, first of all. I mean, I never understood what it was in early recovery. I'd be, you know, to my sponsor, I'd be like, oh, thank you so much for helping me. And they're like, no, thank you. You help me more than, and I, I never understood that. I'm like, how could I be helping you more? Like, do you see how messed I up, 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 messed up I am here? And they'd be like, no, seriously, like passing on what was taught to me has actually been a gift and it fills my cup up more. And that's exactly why I do what I'm doing today. I left my corporate job a few months ago because I'm like, that's not what I'm meant to do. Like I'm meant to help people. And you talk about, you know, the power of prayer. <laughs> and I remember an early recovery, a good example was I was praying for patience, right? Because I didn't know what this prayer thing, I didn't know what my higher power looked like to me at the time. And I was praying for patience and I got tested over and over and over again because, I, you know, you had said the lust thing and all that. And it is, you have to be careful what you ask for because then you're going to be tested in certain ways. So I learned that very on a recovery, but it is amazing when you stop and just ask for help and what's my next course of action? Like, what is my next step? What am I supposed to do? Inevitably, you hear it, either voices, you hear it through a friend, you know, through a trusted advisor. You always get the answer. It's not always what you want to hear. It's usually what you need to hear. So, you know, how do you help people find out who they really are? You know, because jumping back to being authentic, I think that's a really important part of self-discovery, right? Learning who you are so you can start down the path and actually live a more purpose-driven life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's about building a relationship with the individual. Um, I really like the process of our big book using the step four and five. And a lot of it is showing them who they are not. Like as we strip down the layers, we talked earlier in the podcast about the mask. You had mentioned masks. Our society teaches us and our society is based on a foundation of self. Everything for yourself. And as we go out into the society, we're wearing all these masks to, to be who you need me to be in whatever given circumstance. And a lot of these behaviors are kind of ingrained as you're a child and growing up through through life and through teenage years and through peer pressure and we start using these masks and we people please i used to use anger and violence to get my way 
Some people use, you know, whatever their manipulation tactics are, but it's all based in a selfish motive. So I really try to show them who they're not. And then we try to really go in to see who you are. What, what's in your heart? Let's look at the things that you've worshipped in your life. You worship money. You worship people. You worship these ideas. Whose ideas are these actually? When you ask a person whose idea is this that you believe, they're, they're going to say it's theirs. But when you get under the layers of this, they're like, well, I didn't really have a choice in that idea, I guess. I'm like, yeah, it's not really yours. It's an indoctrinated belief system that you've built your life around that it wasn't even you. And it actually goes against a lot of who you are from what I can see. And so as we look at what they've actually worshipped in their life, and we don't really think of that when we're living life out there. We just think it's just life. But once you do this introspective work and you start seeing these things that, that are real, it really starts making you go, whoa. So as I make these people go, whoa, I said, and then I'll say, what are the things that really drive your life? What are the three or four most important things in your life when you're dying that you, you want to remember? And it's usually the day my kid was born, spending time with my grandmother, playing with my dog, being at the beach house, being at the ocean. I'm like, where do those things come from within you? And they always go, what do you mean? I'm like, point on your body where those things are originating from. And they point to their heart. And I said, now point to where all those other things you worship originate from. And they point to their head. I'm like, yeah, the things that are most important in your life always come from the heart. This is where we don't live anymore. And when you start living from the truth of who you are, and God gave you this guidance system to guide your life, but we confuse it all with all the shit that we've learned. So we got to go from that, the longest distance in the world, from the head to the heart, and start listening to, like you talked about, the intuition, the prayer, the meditation, getting the answers. Because it is right there. It guides me. And that's how I, and sounds like you, live my life today. I do not make a decision in my life today until I got the answer 100%. And I get it through prayer and meditation, sharpening the tool of intuition. And like you said also, might not be always what I want. But I'm going to get what I need. And usually it turns out much better than I could have planned anyway. So... That's the stuff that I do with people and I get to know them on a deep, loving, caring level. And, uh, and then they love a lot and then they start seeing things differently. And a guy like me or a guy, a woman like you, we can only take these people so far. Then they got to go with their own creator. They got to seek and do more of their own introspective because we can't take them any further than we can take them. But it's a beautiful thing to watch them come out of the darkness and into the light and then transfer that light to somebody else. It's like just getting shivers thinking about it because it's, it's magic, right? Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps too because it's exactly when I watch somebody, that light goes on in their eyes when they realize maybe I can change my life. Maybe I can turn things around. There's not a better feeling. And I think that's, you know, we learn in recovery to become other people centered because everything was always about us, you know, and I think 
the the you know being unselfishly selfish to the point where you discover your purpose what's important to you what resonates with you and then doing that in a more purpose-driven life will result in you living a more other people-centered life because now you found out what you love you can help others accomplish the same thing and the cycle goes on and on and on now you're really passionate of course about helping your first nations brothers and sisters out of the darkness you talked about that right taking people out of the darkness and into the light can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah um you know i've i've worked with hundreds of alcoholics one-on-one many of them first nation um i have a good friend that's also worked with many hundreds and we compare a lot of data and i'm a data collector by nature i see and i observe and i and i and I read the data and I see people of all walks of life come in and try to get sober. The ones that I see that have the hardest time are first nations people. Um, I've come to a conclusion. One of my conclusions is the trauma, the deep rooted intergenerational trauma is so deep and every cell in our body has memory. And some of the memory in, in, in our brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, some of that deep-rooted trauma passed through the generations is so deep. Some of our people never experienced what love was. And then they've had kids and never been able to give true love. And these people are, a lot of people are very, very broken and they don't know how to get out of it. And the only thing that blots that out is drugs and alcohol. So if, if I can do anything for my people and, and mind you, like I was very prejudiced against my own people, but I didn't understand. I was a contempt prior to investigation guy. I did not understand, but I've understood many things in the last six years. And, and I just want to help my brothers and sisters as many as I can. And I think it starts at a, at a leadership level. And if you can help one person, that one person can help their family. And that family can help the community. It's always one person, one family, one community at a time. And here's a great example of that. I'm First Nations. I work my recovery program. And when I say the work, I got I to gotta highlight this. The work isn't just let's do the pen and paper. The real work is what I do when I walk out that door. What am I going to do in this circumstance? Am I going to be doing something other centeredness? In this exact moment, am I going to try something different in this moment? And it's very hard work because these belief systems and, and ideals and behaviors for me have been ingrained my whole life. And for me to go out and go, I'm going to do something different right now, that's hard. And it's hard to turn away easy, an easy um, you know, sexual encounter where I'm taking advantage of somebody. It, it's hard to turn that away, I should say. It's easy to go get that because that's what I'm used to. And that person's used to giving it up anyway. But am I going to self-sacrifice for the benefit of them because my selfishness doesn't serve them or me? And when I want to spout off at somebody in anger for their opinion, am I going to stop and go, what does my opinion matter to, in this situation? And am I going to do what's hard and, and take my opinion elsewhere? And then pray for this person. Like, that's the real work, right? So in my recovery, I remember I tried to shove this stuff down my three daughters' throats and my ex-wife's throat, kind of, as it was changing me so much. All it really did was push them away. And then I realized that two years in, don't say anything. 
just live this. So now I'm six years. I've been living it for the last six years. My daughters, two of them came to me two months ago and said, dad, we want to work the steps. And my ex-wife came to me and said, Bill, I need help. I want to work the steps, whatever you think. So just by power of attraction, my, my extended family, my daughters and my ex-wife, or they're all working steps. And I help them find sponsors and they're not even full blown alcoholics. And the book says, we are sure our book has its benefits for all. And it is a design for living. I'm just grateful that I'm an alcoholic and addict because I found the piece of me that was missing and it's contained in that book. And it's how I live now. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky I'm an addict and alcoholic because I got to find that part of me that was missing through all of this stuff we do. So, yeah. I totally agree. And I don't know, you know, most of my friends who are not alcoholics, all of them have said everybody should do these 12 steps. Like they are really, like you said, it's a design for living. It helps you create that foundation so you can actually create a life that you are meant to live. And yeah, I think everybody should do it. That's for sure. Now, you have a new podcast. You had a podcast that's ending and you have a new podcast coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What inspired you to create it? Yeah, well, I've done what are called big book studies for years. So I'll go through the literature of the 12 steps in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I will do these Zoom big book studies and in-person ones. And I get such a number of people showing up to them and people always asking me, can you bring more? bring more, bring more. And then I had a couple old timers in the program approach me and I would see this one guy and he would always show up in my big book studies. He had over 20 some years. And I said, why do you come to my studies? He said, it's not like you need this. And I know your recovery is solid. And all I do is see a smile at the back whenever you're here. He's like, Bill, I come to see you. He's like, I've been around this program 20 some years. I have never seen anybody spit and fire like you. He's like, I think you should take this to the world and you should, you should help your brothers and sisters. And uh, so I just get inspired because people get inspired. So I did that first podcast, the UDR cast with my buddy, Tommy for, you know, good eight months and it, and it got great reviews. Um, Tommy's now back with his wife who he wasn't with before he started doing the work with me. So he's got his whole life back. So now we're kind of going our separate ways. Um, this is my way of life. So I'm going to do the Bill Ward Life podcast. I already have the platform on, on uh, Spotify and Anchor. And uh, I do big book material. I'm just going to do recovery podcasts with individuals around the world. I'd probably like to have you as a guest when I get, get it all going. I just redid my first interview here recently. And uh, I'm going to be working with this thing called The Club. It's an online app and it's a worldwide app and I'm uh, going to get connected on that and spread the message bigger and louder. And I also want to do another podcast just strictly for first nations or first nations influencers. I'm a little bit down the road, but you got to understand like all of this stuff I'm doing with no money. Like I haven't monetized a lot of this yet and creator just keeps making it happen. So everything has to happen one little step at a time, right? Absolutely. And I love that. I mean, I think we have such with podcasting, 
it's such a great platform to connect with people, to spread our message. And I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm interviewing people, I actually take away so much. It's like this mini education session where I get to learn people's stories and how they overcame their addiction and their adversities. And I feel like, you know, just like talking one-on-one with a fellow alcoholic, it helps me more than it helps them sometimes. So I think it's a great platform. I love what you're doing and I know you're gonna help so many people. Now, if people wanna learn more about what what you do and work with you, how can they get a hold of you? Um, they can get a hold of me through my Facebook page, Changemaker or Bill Ward. Um, you can also follow my personal because uh, my personal is just connected to my business anyway. Um, I'm on Instagram at Bill Ward Life. I'm on Instagram at Bill Ward Life First Nations. I'm on Twitter at Bill Ward Life. Um, I'm really trying to gain uh, some following on my YouTube channel, Bill Ward Life on YouTube. Um, If you punch in Bill Ward Recovery, I'll come up. Um, What else? Spotify. Check me out on Spotify. And what I really, my website, www.billward.life. What I really want to get doing is doing in-face speaker engagements, speaking to organizations, First Nations, communities. Um, I want to travel Canada with a video guy, um, doing interviews with chief and councils and, and community members and bringing forth issues and talking about the great things that these communities are doing too. And, uh, oh yeah, I have a documentary coming out on me here uh, in a couple months. I got so many fun things going on. It's it's just crazy, Tamara. Tamara. It's amazing what happens when you follow your passion. It just goes to show you when you take the time to listen to what you're truly meant to do. It's I feel the same way, right? I just feel like I'm being pulled in this path now that I, you know, if you would have asked me nine years ago, I would have thought you were crazy for saying that I would be where I am today. But Bill, thank you so much for sharing your story. I feel like we have to have you on for another episode because I feel like we could keep talking about stuff. So I just really appreciate you being on the show today. And I thank you for having me big time, big time. And I can't wait for you to be on mine. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Road Beyond Recovery. And of course, as always, if you want to get a hold of Bill, just head on over to the show notes and there will be his links. And don't forget, if you haven't already, come join us on a Collaboration Zone Zoom call party. These run every second week, and this is a great way to network with like-minded entrepreneurs in recovery to help scale your business. You can head on over to www.theroadforward.ca slash collaboration zone to save your seat now. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Road Beyond Recovery. Did you know that our dreams can become a reality? When you determine your purpose in life and you allow that purpose to guide you, anything is possible. It just takes action. Don't wait until you're ready. Start to create the life you were truly meant to live right now. I am super passionate about my mission to help people live up to their true potential. So if you want to learn more, check out my website at www.theroadforward.ca. And until next week, keep exploring what lies beyond recovery for you.